The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Kia ora, good morning and welcome to the Offspin podcast brought to you by Coffee Supreme and right now uh, we are bringing you this episode right in the middle of a cricket game because for some reason we're going to be basically playing a two-dayer here so at the at the point that things stand right now the Black Caps are 211 for 5 off 46.5 overs and at times it was an immensely frustrating game. I just want to quote my colleague Don Rowe, who was talking about it in the office before. Uh, and he said, I watched that and now I'm tired and pissed off. And then added, that was worse than the Warriors by far. So to talk about the game so far and what's coming next in the game and, and all sorts of other things around cricket... Uh, today I'm not going to be joined by the regular co-host Simon Day because he is in Australia and we couldn't get the phones working, uh, but I will be joined by a genuine broadcaster, a genuine cricketer and a genuinely interesting chap all round, Peter McGlashan. Yeah, nice to be here. Uh, so, okay, so at times that was an immensely frustrating watch last night. I, I found it personally maddening at times. Uh, what was your impression of it? Yeah, it was like an old school one day game back before we knew that there was this exciting thing called T20. <laughs> we used to be quite happy with a game where it's sort of 240, 250, but um, the form of this Black Caps team has been frustrating on many fronts, and, and it was kind of a continuation of that. Mm. And here we are. Um, you know, cricket couldn't. We thought cricket couldn't get any more complicated, and now we've got a two-day, one-day match. <laughs> yeah, I just uh, there was a moment where uh, Henry Nichols, he was on about twenty-eight or fifty, I think, and it sort of almost looked like, uh, you know, in that classic way of putting a platform down and then exploding later on was being set. And he let through a straight one from Ravi Jadeja, and uh, I mean, if you're a cricket fan watching at home and wanting to see some real fight and excitement, why would you keep watching after that? Yeah, that that uh, delivery that got Nichols out reminded me of the solitary time I've played Last Man Standing where I managed to oh, play yeah. all round one from some guy who bowled wibbly wobblies and it put me off cricket for the rest did of they my know life, who, Did they know who you were? 
I uh, no, they were, yeah, they were really good about it. I mean, there's some there's some good guys playing there. I, you know, the, I bet they were good about getting a full black cap out. <laughs> I bet they were great about it. I think Craig Pryor and, and some of the former Auckland boys I used to play against were playing on the pitch next door at the Auckland Domain, and um, yeah, they had just as much of a laugh about it. But it's uh, yeah, it's such a frustrating time for this New Zealand side. Only two of the the New Zealand batters are averaging over 40, and yet mm. six of the Indians are averaging over 40. So mm. they're always up against the hiding to nothing. But um. It's very rare that you get so many players out of form. I think that's the kind of the big, the confusing part about this tournament. Yeah, and, and potentially uh, you could look at innings like what Williamson played and what Taylor is still currently playing, uh, I suppose, technically. And it, it sort of felt like they chewed up too many dot balls. But is that perhaps just a function of not actually trusting who's coming next in the order necessarily? Yeah, it's a combination of all those. So very good bowling on India's behalf. Oh, they were exceptional. Oh yeah. uh, defensive mindset, as you say, saying, you know, we've got to conserve wickets. We need to play uh, play cautious as opposed to aggressive. And then uh, just not being in particularly good form. We saw a lot of um, frustration in Kane Williamson sort of, um, you know, throwing his hands up in the air after mm. he'd played the shot mm. and the ball not quite going in the areas that he wanted um, and Ross looked you know, like it was a tough day at the office yeah. um, but as we've seen throughout this tournament, if those guys don't do that there isn't much else happening in the, in the rest of the top six. When, when that frustration sets in is that uh, I, I mean I, the, the moment of it and the sort of occasion of it, uh, is that likely to be the sort of thing that you know, Williamson and Taylor between them have scored probably a hundred hundreds over their lifetime at, at various levels of cricket. But uh, does the sensification, can it stop you from thinking your way through those situations and and stop you from, you know, doing the basic things like just ticking the singles over, for example? Yeah, I think that's one of the unique things about the, that what World Cups offer is that, as we've seen leading up to this tournament, um, lots of bilateral games where you mm. play the same team three or five times and you kind of work out, if it doesn't work today, what can I change and then it'll work tomorrow? But because you've constantly been playing a different team every day day of the week, um, you haven't seen that same level of consistency uh, amongst the New Zealanders. And you do get the sense that there's so much weight on Kane and Ross's shoulders, they're mm doing really well to, to carry that load and they've managed to get us this far and it'll only take another couple of guys kind of chipping in and just doing average just just meet their yeah, average that would be, be enough a bit late now that's I the suspect thing. it might be I mean we would have got 23 <laughs> balls left in our innings yeah um, I'm sure Trent Bolton Henry and Cole you know, swing for the fences, mm. and then we'll just have to see what happens. But what it does mean is that for 50 overs in the field, we should see the best from Guptill and Nichols. And these guys, they can't leave anything on the park. They've got to throw themselves around. And mm. as you say, it's their last hurrah. It's their last chance to kind of disprove us critics back here in <laughs> <at> NZ. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I suppose uh, any any criticism coming from me, uh, a sort of number nine batsman or thereabouts. It comes from a place of love. At about uh, C, 2C grade or thereabouts uh but from you i mean you're a you're a cricketer who was known for uh, betting and trying to get a bit of a wriggle on a lot of the time it would be one of the ways that i'd describe it uh perhaps you'd call you quite a busy batsman as well in a way has the advent of t20 and boundary hitting in that sense has that potentially eroded some of the skill that batsmen have in terms of finding those singles and in terms of just keeping it ticking over ball after ball? 
Yeah, it's an interesting observation. I think the challenge in New Zealand is that we tend to use all the same players for all formats. Right. Um, and so you really do have to be kind of a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. And, and whereas if you look at many of the other countries around the world, they've kind of got 70 or 80% of their T20 side don't necessarily play tests or mm. they've got specialist test players because of the, the large kind of professional squads. But maybe because of the resources or, or just our... Um, you know, lack of development of players, it tends to be the same guys being asked to change format time after time. And it kind of means that you can't be a specialist in one. I, I was never going to play test cricket because, you know, I didn't master the art of kind of batting for long right. periods. You played quite a few first-class games though, right? About oh, 70 yeah. odd first-class Yeah, I think I might have... Yeah, I think I was getting close. I've got a random feeling that it might have been 99. I, I probably should have gone Sorry. back and done one more. <laughs> um, but but you're right. Yeah, you get to a level where you can. I could have. Yeah, I can make first class sides. Play a lot of games in that. But um, but never really had the run scoring in four day cricket to kind of push for a test spot. Um, but I knew that I could be very, very good at innovating and and mm. accumulating. And my game was very much about the psychology of the opposition. I, I got to know the guys I was playing against so well that I knew that if I put them under stress, I knew how they would react and I knew which type of delivery they would bowl. And so I could kind of stay one step ahead of them. I knew that if I put... Paul Hitchcock under pressure, he'd bowl a Yorker, and I liked mm. that because I played my paddle sweep, and I knew that if I got four away from that, he'd bowl a slower ball, and I liked that because. So I was always trying to. I knew that I wasn't going to necessarily. Like it was, yeah. That, I mean, that, that was just the way I played the game, and I think a lot of wicket keepers are like that. Maybe that's why wicket keepers yeah. play more reverse sweeps and things. Is as a wicket keeper, you're constantly looking around the outfield, you're assessing the surface, you're trying to look closely at the bowler's hand to work out which way they're turning it, and so you do kind of. I guess become a little bit more analytical than, mm. than the rest of your slips, Corden. Mm. Well, I mean, it's it's potentially the one reason why MS Stoney is still in this Indian team because he can be a, a sort of on-field advisor. As it He's were. fascinating. So he took a catch last night that wouldn't have looked out of place at Auckland Domain. It was like a gator kind of. <laughs> did you see Colin de Gronholm get caught yeah. behind off that ramp shot? And he just yeah. kind of like crocodiled it. Yeah. You know, that, it that's worked. the sort of thing you just don't expect to see from an international wicket keeper. But yeah. Tony's just well, he also so had relaxed, that one though where so uh, chilled. Uh, who was it? Might have been Williamson batting. I can't quite remember, but the ball dropped just in front of him, and a younger man might have got forward to it. Oh, absolutely. There's there's definitely some things that you give up by keeping Dhoni in the team around agility. Even, you know, we've seen earlier in the World Cup criticism of him not being aggressive enough and kind of maybe batting for his average or batting to be there at the end when his mm. team actually needed to kick on a little bit. So you know, those guys who have been around the block have kind of earned the right to... Um, you know, have their faults, uh, but still remain in the team. And he's definitely a guy who, you know, has that charisma, um, has all of India behind him, and mm-hmm. yeah, he's a mm-hmm. huge role model for all those guys. But and funny, they've got two other wicket keepers in this in their squad with Pant and uh, and Dinesh Kartik as well. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, Dhoni's still kind of you know, holding everyone up. <laughs> it's one way of hiding him in the field. Yeah, that's well. There was talk last night of him having to have a bowl because they've only got yeah, five, uh, yeah, yeah, that five specialist funny, bowlers. But, so. Oh well. Were, uh, were you at the at the double header in Auckland uh, earlier this year? I was. Yeah, I left a bit of a digital footprint after that game. It's fair yeah, to say. Yeah, I suppose you did. Um, no, I was. Uh, well, we can get onto that in a bit. But uh, I was going to say it was it was incredible uh, being in Auckland and hearing the loudest cheer and chant of the game. Uh, being for Dhoni. I yeah. mean, that that was something that, I don't know, I'm not sure if I quite appreciated quite what the fervour of, yeah. uh, of Indian cricket was, but you played, uh, from memory, all of your 
one day internationals against, yeah. against India. Against possibly the best ever Indian team ever. I actually bought the shirt and oh, I, um, really? I, I, Who's I did you get? Uh, Dinesh, I ended up really good friends with Dinesh Kartik over oh, the course of the series. Um, he was fascinated by the wiki-keeping mask that I was wearing and mm. asked more about it and I gave him one and he went back to India and wore it in the IPL for years and years and years mm. and um, so off the back of that he gave me his shirt which was signed by the whole squad brilliant um, but I mean that squad when did he switch to DK as opposed to having Dinesh think, yeah you get to a stage where you're famous enough oh, where okay. um, yeah, yeah, you get yeah. to have DK on your shirt um, but I mean that, that, that team was Tendulkar mm. Dravid Laxman Habajan mm. Sahir Khan um, it was just an amazing group of human beings, and to be able to stand there, you know, I was wicket keeping in the game. At uh, and the, the other funny thing about that um, series is it was during the preparations for the Rugby World Cup, so all these stadiums were only half built. Mm. So when I played at Eden Park, only half the stadium had seats, and the other half was a building site. So it was almost. Um, there was this wave of noise that would kind of wash out of the stands across the field and then dis- disappear, disappear out into the construction site. And it was the same at Jade Stadium. Um, it was, I think it was one of the last series um, before the, the earthquakes down there, or maybe a couple before, but again, it was a building site. Mm-hmm. Um, Tendulkar was on his way to almost being the first player to get 200 in that one oh, day, and no one had ever done it before. Right. And he retired hurt for 180-odd with like six overs to go. Oh, and Tim Southey, I think, might have gone for 100. Like, it was just absolutely surreal. Mm. Jeden Patel was bowling, and, and um, we'd shifted the field round, cover sweeper, pushed him around a bit straighter, and I had the, I don't know, wasn't the wisest thing I've ever said on the cricket field. I, I, Tendulk was batting in front of me, and I said, oh, big gap at point, boys, let's see if he can work it there. And he just <laughs> eased onto the front foot, pushed it behind point for four, and turned around to me and said, where would you like me to hit the next one? Oh, my God. That's <laughs> amazing. Sledged by Tendulk? It was, it was just fascinating. Did you put was, that on your business cards or anything? No, that's, no. Well, I had, a, it's very I had a couple of wonderful experiences with him. Like I banged into him at the Heathrow Airport when I was on the Napier Boys High first 11 trip to the UK. Oh, wow. And and he was just cruising around the airport. They were, it was obviously kind of pre-airport lounges. Got a photo with him. Four mm. years later, India were playing in Napier. Took the photo up, got him to sign it. Four years later, was playing against him. Yeah. And sort of, it was amazing to kind of look at that photo and, and kind of track my journey of cricket and to kind of think that it had gone full circle where, um, you know, you would have seen him come up on the big screen last night. It's one of the yes. biggest roars from that crowd yeah. was when this guy who used to play was on the big screen. Yeah, well, I think it's probably fair to say they weren't cheering him for his political career. As it were. <laughs> There's a lot of cricketers in politics. Yeah, well, yes, and uh, that uh, brings me on to uh, your political career. Uh, it hasn't started yet, so it feels a bit, yet, so, a bit nervous okay. about pumping it up too much. Okay, so. have you, you haven't done any, uh, any advanced polling of, of no. The, no, of the popularity of Pete McGlashan in the Tamaki area. No, um, yeah, so it's fair to just say. Just tell us what you're standing for first. Yeah, well, I, um, I guess over the years, um, when I reflect, I've, I've ended up in positions where I've ended up representing people. So, um, I guess my year starting off in cricket was the first year that the Players Association was established, mm. and so it was fascinating to kind of watch the evolution of that. A lot of cricketers, a lot of professional cricketers, probably don't think of it as a union, but it actually is. Oh, absolutely. Um, and yet, it, so it's you know it's that representation, that collective voice to make sure that you know better conditions and all that. 
um, had two parents who were teachers and so kind of grew up very conscious of the, the importance of um, representation and then later on in life ended up um, working for some domestic violence organisations advocating for change and and, um, mm. and awareness of that cause. So, I, but just uh, just to sidetrack yeah. there, didn't you uh, pull out of the the wider playing squad for the twenty twelve T twenty World Cup in order to go and do that job? Yeah, well, I um for the last few years of my career, I was kind of trying to work out what life would be like after cricket. Mm. So the the way cricket contracts work in New Zealand is you just get a ranking, 1 to 15 or 1 to 20, yep. and your pay is not negotiable. It's just based on what ranking you are. So I had a couple of years where I was really fortunate for Northern Districts to be ranked number one contract, which I think at the time was about $35,000-ish. Um but not bad for yeah, for a six, summer, yeah, six months' work, and you got yeah. paid for the games as well. So the money was good, but you were effectively unemployed for the other six months mm. of the year. Um, and but over the last few years, BJ Watling's stocks were going up. He was getting, you know, he became the test keeper, and my ranking was coming down, and, and my earnings were coming less. So it became quite real for me that um, I was on the way out, and I needed mm. to find out what the next chapter of life would look like. So for a couple of years, probably the last four years of my playing career, each winter I'd do something different. So I had two winters where I worked at Sky TV as a field producer on the rugby centre, having never played a game of rugby in my life. <laughs> um, so that was a, a wonderful experience, kind of getting a, a glimpse behind the curtain, having to do all the editing and talk to the audio guys and kind of package up what a show would look like. Did a bit of marketing stuff, a domestic violence campaign during 2011, and then got asked by um, the family foundation that, that Owen Glenn, the um, mm-hmm. multimillionaire, Sir Owen Glenn, runs um, to do some domestic violence work for them in South Auckland. And that was kind of the first time I realised this is the thing that I might be able to finish on. Um, the other, I guess, turning point in my life was my last ever first-class game was in Napier, Um and at the end of the first, which is where I'm from, at the end of the mm. first day, I got a phone call from my mum to say, Grandma hasn't answered the phone in a little while. Can you go and check on her? And, yeah, end of the first day, I said to the guy I was rooming, wait, look, I've got to go do a family thing. Mm. And I found her. She'd passed oh away. Oh, God. Um, and so my last first-class game, my last experience with professional cricket was basically one day in the field, second and third and fourth day kind of dealing with this family tragedy yeah, helping yeah. prepare for the funeral and that kind of meant that when I went into that winter I kind of cricket played a different it was in a different place in my life mm. you kind of reflect on how much time you give up I mean you know what it's like cricket takes so long Oh God. you know the yeah, time yeah, that yeah, you don't absolutely. get with loved yeah. ones and girlfriends and partners and boyfriends and you just you're away all the time you know entire days away Yeah, and it kind of really made me reflect and go wow like you know I've given up so much of my time and my life for this. Mm-hmm. Um, have I got the balance right? And then I was just really fortunate that that led into a really good job offer where it actually allowed me to kind of go, I don't need to do this anymore. It's I was already questioning the place it played in my life and then I was offered a chance to kind of step into the next part. So it was just, yeah, it's impeccable timing. It wasn't planned at all. It was mm-hmm. just one of those things where things were put in place and it just seemed like the right thing to do at the right time. It was a good time to get off the... It had been a good ride. Yeah, you, you sort of mentioned that it, it, you know, cricket had a different place for you after that. Had it had it been... Uh, well, how much a part of your identity had being a cricketer been in that way? Like, how, how much did it just uh, dominate how you saw yourself? Yeah, it was a big part. I mean, I'd been playing profession- in the New Zealand cricket system since I was 15 and... Um, 
you had made the New Zealand under 19 team, trip to the World Cup, second in the World Cup, lost to England in the final. Mm. Um, you know, I think six or seven guys out of that team went on to play for New Zealand Kyle Mills, the Marshall Twins, Michael Paps, Lou Vincent. Um, uh, so, really successful kind of um, cohort coming through. And and over the course of my professional career, I had a couple of ups and downs. You know, I, I couldn't crack it in the CD team. Um, Martin Sigley and Bevan Griggs from Palmerston North were ahead of me. Uh, I got Where the offer. To, yeah, well, I, got, <laughs> I got the offer to go to Otago because Brendan, they heard Brendan was going to get picked for his first World Cup. So I went to Otago for a year. Um, had a great time down there, and um, and you know realised there was more to life than Central Districts and home and Napier and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, then Gareth Hopkins wanted to move to Otago because Brendan wanted to move his family to Christchurch, so I missed that gig. So kind of, I went from playing first class cricket every, you know, every day of the summer, to being uh, non-travelling reserve for the Auckland Second Eleven Oof. the following summer um, with Reese Young and Shane Singh ahead of me in the Auckland pecking order. So I just went back to uni and I threw myself into my degree, did my biomechanics degree, um, was working for Nike, developing Nike cricket shoes and Pat Malkin, the Northern District selector, saw me on the TV working with Shane Bond after he was recovering from injury. Uh, Rob Hart had retired and they realised they'd they didn't have a keeper. BJ Watling was only 18. He hadn't mm, made the grade mm. yet. And they weren't quite sure if he was ready. So I was really fortunate that, again, you know, the choices that I made in my life just happened to put me in the right place at the right time to take the opportunity that was in front of me. And I ended up playing, I think, eight years for Northern Districts. Um, I probably delayed BJ's development. He, you know, he, I think he's about <laughs> he's to go past. Oh, you but know, he's I mean, he's now. about to go past, I think, Adam Perori's most test dismissals either. Yeah. Um, if he'd been playing for Northern Districts in the long format earlier, he would have flown past that. Um, you know, his work ethic means that he was always going to do really, really well. But I was I was fortunate. I got a crack. And I played about 15 games for New Zealand, got to travel the world, played in Sri Lanka and, and the, the T20 World Cup in the UK. And mm. I've got no regrets for my cricket career, but it did define me. And that's interesting. That's something that you know, I'm sure my sister... Actually, she will mind. Uh, but it's something she struggled with, with you know, yeah, being was... dropped out of the White Ferns and then kind of having this realisation that who am I if I'm not that? She's played over 200 games for New Zealand, most capped player for New Zealand up until the last summer, and kind of faces that reality of she's, you know, she's mid-30s and that's kind of all she's known. So yeah, it's yeah. A, I think it's a massive issue for cricket. It's why we have high levels of depression Suicide rates aren't great in cricket. It's just such a. I mean, you guys know what it's like watching the game these last these last couple of weeks of this World Cup have been so stressful oh, and physiological, well, yeah, demanding. And cricket's just one of those games where it's cruel more often than it's kind. Yes, yeah, indeed. And and speaking of your your sister as well, though she has. Uh, uh, she's been able to take advantage of the growth in T20 leagues as well, hasn't she? Yeah, so she's played over in the UK, which is the Kia Super League, um, and she's played in the Women's Big Bash for the Sydney Sixers, won two titles, I think, with them. Um, I, I don't I don't want to put words in your mouth or anything, but perhaps uh, they're valuing her more than the White Ferns set up up? Yeah, I guess so. It's... Um, it's a challenge for international cricket because... Y- you have to pick a team, particularly in the way the women's structure is, and, and the men the same as we said before, playing all three formats. You pick a team which plays both forms, and the feedback to Sarah was that she wasn't, her track record in 50 over cricket wasn't good enough. They were about mm. to go into a 50 over World Cup, and so the messaging was, um, 
you're not going to get a contract this year because we're focusing on T20s. Um, but the message didn't change when the following year rolled around and it was a T20 World Cup and she was travelling the world. Her and Rachel Priest are you know, two of the hottest players that aren't playing international cricket for mm-hmm. T20 leagues mm-hmm. around the world. Um, and you know that's frustrating, but that's the realities of what they go through at the moment, at the moment with the way the system is. So she's actually in Tasmania at the moment. She's picked up a job working for Tasmanian cricket. She's moved cool. her life over there. She knew no one in Tasmania. She's, Tasmania is beautiful. Yeah, I've never Went been. To Apparently, an art festival there once. It was oh, there incredible. You go. Yeah, yeah, she she loves it. It's I mean she but she didn't know anyone there. She you know she had no track record, but it was through recommendations from Cricket Australia women's under nineteen coach and some others at the Sydney Sixers who said, you know, Sarah's a good person to invest in. So, mm. um, but the options are limited for the, the women's game, be it coaching, administrating, and playing. But potentially uh, developing further at the moment in terms of all of those wider ancillary roles around cricket. Is I mean, is it is it the sort of thing where you know, again, you don't want to look too far into the future or anything like that, but is it the sort of thing where uh, one day she could be a professional coach of a of a provincial side in the in the women's game or, or you know, potentially even game. coach in the men's game? Yeah, why would that know? be unusual? Um, if, oh, I hope so. I mean, you know, there, it was interesting, your chat with Susie Bates. I mean, that was probably the most honest I've heard Susie and good on her for being upfront mm. about some of the things. Um, you know, the, the cricket... Uh, the the women's players, and it seems stupid to add the word women's before players. Um, they've they've just accepted what they've got. They've had to put up with what's been offered. Um, and you know, when I made some tweets earlier in the year, there was pretty mm. big backlash to that. About um, I wasn't asking for equal pay. I was just saying, you know, let's shift the needle towards it. You know, what's the plan? When will we get there? And you know, those those players for a long time. They can't bite the hand that feeds them. That's the reality of it. They can't, um, you know, rock in there and kind of bang their fists on the table and mm. say we deserve more. Um, uh, the US football team, amazing example at the moment. Yeah, well, yeah. You know, the tide has turned where they've kind of managed to capture the public. Um, they've even got Trump they, against them. They're and, actually managing to bring in more revenue for US football than the men's team are, which yeah. I, I thought it was an astonishing. Well, that's always the last final piece in the argument from the other side is, oh, well, they don't yeah, generate enough yeah, revenue. Yeah, yeah, it's like any startup business. If you don't invest in it, it more than it pays off. You know, Uber's a loss leader at the moment. They don't make money from, <laughs> you don't make money from a startup. You no, you overinvest no. until it pays back. And that's this, the women's game, be it regardless of the sport, needs to be thought of that way because if you invest in the same way that Cricket Australia have invested in the women's big bash, now it's paying back, and and yeah. and same with now the women's football. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now the women's football in the US is the same. You know, for years it would have been a, a loss maker, um, but now the sponsors and everyone else is probably paying the back more than the men's team are generating. Mm. Well, the the other Australian example, of course, is the AFL Women's League, which uh, you know I'm not sure if you've followed that at all. I'm a massive AFL nerd, but uh, for for games of that, they're getting crowds of forty, fifty thousand, yeah, thereabouts, and, and you know. Huge Huge, huge buzz around it. Uh, heaps of people in for the final, that sort of thing. And you just sort of think, why is it that Australia is able to do that and we're not able to do that for really any sport except netball? Yeah, I mean, it's a, 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 the easy answer is money. 
Right. Um, obviously, the AFL and Cricket Australia are very wealthy organisations and oh. therefore have a bit of uh, fat to trim if they want to decide there's a pet project that they want to nurture. Um, but interestingly, several of the, the women's AFL players were playing in the women's big bash. So a lot mm. of those athletes, again, because it's it wasn't kind of fully professional, there was a couple of players in the Sydney Sixers squad that were also preparing for the for the women's AFL. But as you said, good crowds, you know, marketed well, good product on the park, um, good coverage. So they had lots of online streaming where you could watch the games even if it wasn't yes. on TV. So from a broadcasting and how you tell those stories and a really active social media group where the athletes are willing to be vulnerable. There was lots of comments, I think, on some of the um, one of the players who had an image of her kind of leaping for the ball and it was, you know, over-sexualized oh, and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. you know, they're willing to take on those battles. Anytime women walk into these areas where they've traditionally been pushed to the side, the first line in, in, you know, in the fight will, will take some hits. The same mm-hmm. with equal parity, the same with, you know, improving levels of governance, mm-hmm. uh, women in governance roles in New Zealand, the, the quota system. I was at a um, woman in leadership, I spoke at a woman in leadership conference last week and lots of concern over the use of the word quota and mm-hmm. how the mm-hmm. first generation of women into those roles will be seen as token because of the quota. And that's kind of how it is, be it the suffragettes, be it apartheid, be it the end of slavery. That first group who are there because of legislation will always be critiqued or overanalyzed or um, torn apart because oh you're only there because the legislation says we have to say you're there. Mm. But for the second generation, it'll be easier. For the third generation, it'll be easier. So they unfortunately, women will need to be bold getting into some of these fights because um, there was a statistic last week. It's going to take at the current rate of gender equality around governance and and leadership and in business. It's going to take another two hundred and seven years. Yeah. to get there. So Why that's a shame. That well, the, uh, with <laughs> climate change the way it is, who yeah, knows whether yeah, we'll be around yeah, yeah. in 207 years. So, um, yeah, there's there's lots of fights to be had. And I guess, that, again, that circling back, that's kind of why I want to get into local body politics. Yeah, you get a chance yeah. to represent voices that maybe haven't been heard. So uh, if you were... Um you know, if you were all of a sudden the minister of sport or something, because as we all know, all politicians eventually want to want to become a you know top minister or whatever. Yeah, I mean that's the one where you get the tickets yeah. to the events. The, the well, minister exactly. of finances, yeah, you get the checkbook, but yeah. there's also someone checking how you spend it. But the, well, that, well, that's why Grant got, Robinson's in a unique position yeah. where he's a massive cricket fan. I saw one of his tweets last night criticising Steve Waugh's commentary. Stuff. I know it's amazing. Um, hey? Good to see him, you know, wading into that. Uh, he'll be gutted <laughs> that he's not over at that. Uh, politicians World Cup, I'd say. Oh, I think we all are in a way. But uh, but uh, say say you were the Minister of Sport uh, tomorrow. What's the first thing you would do to increase uh, grassroots participation in in cricket or or just in sport generally? Yeah, I think it's an interesting uh, kind of place to put yourself in because the the world of sport is changing so much. The traditional sports who have had a bit of a run for for a while and most of them tend to come from sort of a colonial background I guess Mm. Um, I'm on the board of Baseball New Zealand as well as on the board of Northern Districts Cricket Cricket don't see it as a um, conflict of interest but for me Baseball has a lot to learn of cricket, and cricket can learn a lot of baseball yeah. and how they market the game. What were the very crowds analytical. like for the Tuatara 
uh, games, um, when were they, last year? Yeah, yeah, last year. So um, yeah. I, I'm not sure the exact numbers. I th- I've got about 1,500 in my head, oh, yeah. I think. So um, some bad. of them were badly affected by weather. That's, yeah. I guess that's the risk with, well, not the risk, but it's the nature of baseball in that you tend to play three or four games over three or four days, and if you get a bad stint of weather, it's going to affect three or four games, whereas cricket, if they're spread apart, um, it might affect the game on the Wednesday, but your next game's not till Sunday, so it might have cleared up by then. So mm. Auckland's fickle weather had a bit of an effect last year, but it was just an amazing experience to be a part of. I don't know whether you got out to any of the games, but I the branding and the and you know all the best bits of professional sport were there. And and this summer they'll be at um, at North Harbour Stadium. Um, oh, know, that'll be proper, quite a big, yeah, 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 yeah. Proper occasion um, and but, really exciting. Uh, sort of thinking about that, uh, you know, the professional side of it and uh, what you mentioned there, is that necessary in terms of, uh, I don't know, acting as an inspiration for people to play or, or is it uh, sort of, I don't know, maybe putting the cart before the horse a bit? Yeah, it's a really interesting um, question because. Uh, cricket and baseball both face those problems. So baseball, obviously, at a much smaller level, um, there is no, other than Tuatara now, there was no professional structure. And so it has really stretched the National Sporting Organisation to dabble in mm. professional baseball. Uh, and it's made it difficult to kind of stretch the money as far as getting more stuff happening at grassroots. And, and I think in the Hawke's Bay, there's only three registered baseball players. <laughs> so that makes it very difficult to have a game in the Hawke's Bay if you've only got three registered yeah. players. And that's the nature of where baseball is. It's a startup. It's a you know young, up-and-coming, attractive kind of offshore, if you get the opportunity, Cole Glagoski and these guys getting opportunities in the States. But it's going to take a lot of work and energy. So where do you spend your money wisely to get the best return? Mm. Cricket probably at the other end, much more mature, maybe has got a little bit uh, blasé about the way that it does the game, is constantly trying to work out how do we keep up with the Joneses, how do we attract more young people to the game. You know, in England, the 100 reinventing itself. Um, I, yes. I, I don't know what your thoughts are. I just can't help but feel contemptuous towards the 100. Yeah, you know, and it's it, but, but it's an interesting uh, justification for it, which is one of the topics we spoke about beforehand, is mm. it's essentially to get it on free-to-air TV. Right. So right. the 100 is kind of a shift from the ECB, maybe an acknowledgement that going down the um, professionals, you know, uh, the pay TV road has been detrimental in some ways. And therefore, if we can get this form of the game on free to air TV, mm. maybe we can do something different with it. But to have to come up with a new product and explain it and justify it and the way they've rolled it out, mm. you know, it's, it got leaked so early that people had picked the bones out of it before they'd even had the substance provided. So mm. cricket mm. is a sport that's trying to work out how to stay relevant, whereas baseball is a sport that's already relevant, but it's trying to get the air, uh, the air time and the resourcing to do it. And it's, yeah, you're right, it's a balance. How do you, how do you fund grassroots? Uh, rugby's going through the same challenge, well, you know, yeah. professional rugby versus what we hear about uh, club rugby and grassroots. And I mean, in terms of the other, um, the other way that grassroots sports is funded, obviously pokies. And, and you know, wh- where do you take the obvious social good that participating in sport brings? And I think, being honest, the the obvious social harm that that pokies and gambling in that sense cause as well. I mean, where, where's the balance there? Yeah, it's a really tough thing to to kind of discuss, and um, it's discussed at boardrooms all across the country, not just at the top level at professional sport, but also at grassroots. And it's a 
yeah, it's a conversation that needs to be had. The sinking lid policies city by city, and you know the hope is that that harm can be reduced by having less and less poker machines around. Um, but the reality is that you know in many situations the money is absorbed from areas of deprivation mm. and is then relocated to wealthier suburbs where subject a football club, I won't name which one, in the wealthier suburbs <laughs> needs a whole new set of uniforms yeah. and it means that and little they, Johnny's they uniforms, know how to play the system they to, know how to, to fill out that. the forms, yeah. they know how to get the money to access, they, they know how to rub shoulders yeah. and it means that their uniforms are sponsored by Adidas rather than you know some generic um, cheaper shirt which would have been entirely justifiable. I mean, back in my day I think I wore the same Teradol Football Club shirt for like four years and yet now there's this kind of obsession with every year you've got to get a new shirt, you've got to mm. get a new shirt and, and when we break that down and work out how much of that money has come from um, poking machines then you know I think the reality is the like climate change and all these other big issues, there's well, kind of a it horizon. Like fast fashion, yeah, you know? it totally. A new is. shirt every year, yeah, Why? with a new well because there's a new sponsor and the club <laughs> needs to have the new sponsor on the front, and it's and, and some clubs have a have an alternative strip for the seven year olds, and you just like Great. you know. So, but there's lots of those things like poker machine money in sport. Um, like the effect of climate change, you guys made a really good point about the effect that that'll have on cricket as mm. a sport. You know, mm. we're we're a sport that takes a long time outdoors, so chances are you're going to be affected by rain. So we either start to play our games in covered stadiums, mm. or we start to think about how long it takes to play the game to try and reduce the chances of yeah. being affected by weather. Well, fifty degrees in India right now. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, it's not pleasant. It it's not pleasant. I mean, I, we um, over on the way to the under nineteens, we played in Perth, and that was the hottest I'd played in. It was about forty two or forty three, and it's just not. Yeah, it's not pleasant, and it's not healthy for the nature of the sport that we play. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting one because you know the way we absorb that information, the way games are broadcast, all of those things will have an effect. And I guess American sport is the definition of kind of professional, where you. You don't hear of club NFL games, or no, you know, it's no. it's a it's a purely to watch. It's purely to be consumed uh, by the viewer, and you know, that's. I don't think we want to go anywhere near that. We need to make sure that the sports we have in New Zealand can at least be played totally by the public. Yeah. We don't have enough population to be able to put up with um, professional sporting tournaments, mm. which aren't propped up by young kids on Saturday mornings, you know, having a good time. Well, we've gone wildly off track here uh, from <laughs> talking about. I mean, but that, you know, it's been a, it's been a good chat. But I just uh, we'll, we'll start to get towards wrapping it up at some stage. But uh, uh, prediction for what's going to happen tonight? Uh, will we bowl them out? Will it just rain it out and we'll lose on those uh, on those metrics? Will Rohit Sharma hit another century? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it'll rain. I think we should be all right. Um, we only need, you know, we've we've got three overs left and then you only have to face 20. So we only need about an hour and a half over the full day mm. um, to finish this game off. Would you, be... would you bowl Bolton Ferguson up for, you know, 16 of those 20 overs just to try and <laughs> make the most of what little time there might be? Yeah, well, well, it'll it'll depend kind of how it rolls out. I mean, if it looks like it's going to rain, you might want to bank some of them early because, as you say, you get later on and then it gets reduced and you're like, oh, we've only got mm. Bolte's already bowled six, so he's finished. We can't bring him back. True. Um, so all of those kind of calculations will have to be done. I think the weather forecast says hopefully we won't be too badly affected. So and there's too many permutations to try and work all that out. <laughs> but I I just don't know. 
neither team have done this before. This is the first time it's ever happened. And so, you know, who's to say that India's bowlers don't turn up tomorrow and kind of go, oh, we only have to bowl three overs, kind of who cares what happens. And, and New Zealand get 30 or 35 off those three and a bit overs. And, and then we start to sneak to 250. And, you know, India have been contained by Afghanistan for much less than that, 220-odd off the 50 mm. overs against them. New Zealand have demolished India in the warm-up game, bowling them out for 170 That's when Bolter got six for... Um, who knows? Funny who knows? things. Funny things. Uh, is it a funny old game? Is that what you're saying? It's a funny game, and it's, it feels like election <laughs> night where we weren't sure whether National or Labour had won. <laughs> yeah. We've got to come back tomorrow where people with much bigger brains than us kind yeah. of work out all the options. But it, it is fascinating, and you know, it's it could only happen in cricket. Yeah, indeed, indeed. That's a perfect place to finish it off there. I think so. Peter McGlashan. Thank you so much for coming in today. It's been a real pleasure having a chat to you. And, uh, well, all the best for staying up tonight, I suppose. Looking forward to it. And uh, that was the offspin for another episode. I've completely forgotten what number episode it is, so I won't even try and remember there. Uh, We are going to be back with an emergency podcast, win or lose, tomorrow. Simon Day will be back from Australia, all going to plan. Uh, and once again just want to say thank you to Coffee Supreme for making this all happen thank you so much to Alice as well our producer for putting up with a really meandering conversation there Uh, and we will be back again tomorrow morning Kia ora e te iwi, te Ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.